If you would, turn with me to James chapter 3. We're going to finish out the end of chapter 3 today. Our focus will be on 13 through 18. Uh, Before we get there, I want to recap kind of where we've been, what we've looked at in our journey through James that really began, I guess, last April. Um, And over over time, we've looked at this um, as I've had opportunity to preach in Doak's absence We looked at who James is, we looked at who his audience is when we first started out, and I just wanted to give us some reminders this morning. We identified James as the half-brother of Jesus who became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. His letter is addressed to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, meaning that it was written to Jewish Christians who had likely been associated with the church in Jerusalem who had been scattered during a time of persecution following the stoning of Stephen that we read about in Acts chapter 7. So this is a letter written to a Jewish audience in all likelihood, people that James knew probably pretty well. These were his people. The focus of the letter is how faith is to be expressed in the life of the believer, and it's a reminder to us how our faith is also a way of life. It's a guide to putting our faith into practice. As we've seen over the course of these months, James does not mince words. He doesn't beat around the bush. And if you'll recall, I quoted from one author who described the letter as a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. Um, As the letter unfolds, James begins to issue a series of tests. Tests for the readers, for us. Tests that evaluate the genuineness of faith. We looked at the test of trials that come in our lives and how we respond to those. Do we respond by remaining steadfast or do we give in to the temptations that come our way? We looked at our response to God's word. Are we simply hearers of the word or are we doers of the word? We looked at partiality, the sin of partiality. Favoritism goes against the very heart of God. And as believers, we must guard against this in our lives. Then we looked at a faith that works. Another test of genuine faith is a faith that is visible and works. We talked about how nothing that James said is in conflict with what we find in Paul. James says that faith without works is dead. What he does not say is that our works save us. On the contrary, we are saved, we are not saved by what we do, but what we do, James says, demonstrates that we are saved. And then last time we looked at the issue of the tongue. The mark, we said, of a spiritually mature person is a tame tongue. And we talked particularly about how in our day and age, the issue of the digital tongue, the words that come out of our fingertips through our computer keyboards or our computer phone screens, the things that we say on social media, the things that we text to people. Having a tame tongue is a mark of a spiritually mature person. Today we're going to look at the issue of wisdom. Now some commentators see this passage um, as tied directly back to verse 1 of chapter 3 where James addresses teachers. Others see this as James moving on to address the wider body of believers once again. James issued a stern warning to teachers, if you'll remember. Teachers in the church. He said that teaching 
is a dangerous occupation that comes with great responsibility. But I also mentioned last time that in a broad sense, we are all tasked with the important job of teaching. If we are Christ followers, Christ has commanded us in his great commission to go and make disciples and to teach them to obey the commands of Christ. So however you want to slice this, if James is speaking to teachers or if he's speaking to the wider body, bottom line is it's applicable to all of us. So don't think that you get the day off, that you can sleep if you're not a teacher. All right, this applies to all of us and there are things that we need to learn from this passage today. So let's read this together. I'm going to start in chapter 3, verse 13. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up this passage and dig into what James has written under your inspiration, God, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us today. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O God, my rock and my redeemer. And it's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. All right, let's dive in. If you're keeping notes today, I've got four points. First one, defined wisdom. I'm going to look at, look at what, defi- what wisdom is. Let's define it. James doesn't do that for us here. And I think there's a reason for that. Remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience, Jewish believers. And what is a big part of the scriptures that the, that the Jewish people would have been very familiar with? Well, it's the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. The books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I think it's important to highlight. Moses taught that wisdom consists of knowing and doing the commandments of God. This is what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. He said, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this is a great nation that is wise and understanding. Being wise is the ability to apply skill. Sorry. Being wise is the ability to apply with skill what one knows. In this case, it's applying spiritual truth to one's life. I want to look at some of the other things that are written about wisdom in the Old Testament. And there are a lot, there are tons actually, so I just selected a few. But 
Here's some. One is Psalm 111, verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 2, 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 3, 19. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. I want you to turn back with me to Job for a minute. I want to look at a couple of passages in Job. So if you have your Bible handy, keep your, keep your finger in James. We'll come back to it. But Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. Now, Job is responding to what his friends have said to him in chapter 11. His so-called friends believe that they have all the answers. And so this is a sarcastic statement that, that Job is making to them. The wisdom they have is not up to par. Job knows where true wisdom comes from, and he points this out a bit further down. Look at verse 13. Job says, With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Job knows where wisdom comes from. And throughout this book, he's seeking to understand. He's asking God for wisdom and understanding, seeking to know why these things are happening to him the way that they are. Turn to Job chapter 28. Very interesting chapter. It's somewhat of a turning point in the book. If you never spent much time in Job, it's a fascinating book. In the first 11 verses of Job chapter 28, Job kind of lays out some of man's great accomplishments when it comes to mining the depths of the earth. He points out how man has been able to pull precious metals out of the earth through the mining process. But digging deep into the earth or probing the depths of the ocean or the vastness of space will not bring us true wisdom and knowledge. Job knows this, and so he rhetorically asks this question in verse 12. Where shall wisdom be found? So I want you to read with me starting in verse 12. We'll go down through the end of the chapter. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place 
For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So wisdom comes from above. You're not going to find it down here. You can dig as much as you want. It will not be found. Secondly, this morning is demonstrated wisdom. Verse 13 continues, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So James is going to look now at wisdom that is demonstrated. Who is wise, he asks? According to James, the simple answer is the one who proves it. Who is wise? The one who proves it. What James is saying here is that if wisdom is claimed, it should show itself. And it should show itself in three ways that he mentions here. First is good conduct. This word conduct is the same word that Peter uses in his first letter. 1 Peter 1.15 says, But as he, he being God, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The life of the believer should be marked by good conduct. How we live, how we conduct our lives matters. Secondly, James says, his works. Let him show his works. This ties back into what we just read in 1 Peter 2.12 that they may see your good deeds, your good works, and glorify God on the day of visitation. And it's also a revisiting of what James said back in chapter 2. He said, faith apart from works is dead. In humility, the Christian is to do good deeds, to do good works to the glory of God. That's the true spirit of wisdom. That's the spirit of true wisdom. And thirdly, he says, Do this in the meekness of wisdom. Here's a great definition of meekness. Listen to this. It's the middle standing between two extremes. One extreme of getting angry without reason and the other extreme of not getting angry at all. It's the result of a strong person's choice to control their reactions in submission to God. It's a balance born in strength of character stemming from confident trust in God, not from weakness or fear. So James says, who is wise and understanding among you? This is a self-examination question for each of us. Wisdom in the life of the believer is manifesting the power and word of God in every area of our lives. And so James is going to go on now and he's going to compare and contrast two different kinds of wisdoms. Wisdom that is false, which really can't be called wisdom at all, and wisdom that is true. We will see the motivations and the characteristics and the results of each of these as James lays them out. And so he begins with false wisdom, and that brings us to our third point this morning that I'm calling disguised wisdom. Look at verse 14 through 16 again with me. 
If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So what are the motivations for false wisdom? I think James gives us two here. Bitter jealousy, which is a resentful attitude toward everyone else, and selfish ambition, which creates rivalry and is self-focused. Wisdom that is not of God has at its goal self-gratification, personal gratification. It's all about the self. I think James here is challenging his readers again to examine themselves. What are you motivated by? If we're motivated by the promotion of self, it will show itself in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James is saying, stop boasting that you have the wisdom of God when you claim to have what you are not living out. Stop living a lie. The single greatest characteristic of unredeemed people is that of being totally dominated by pride and self. This, as he says, is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is not the wisdom of God. It is not the divine wisdom that comes only from God, for he is the source of wisdom. He then gives us three characteristics of false wisdom. First, he says it is earthly. Okay, it's limited by time and space. Job talked about the things that man has learned from the earth, but these things are limited. Do you remember what we read in Proverbs 3.19? It says, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. That means simply that true wisdom existed before the foundation of the earth because God is the source of true wisdom. So it's not going to be found here. You can dig and dig and dig all you want. It's not going to be found here. True wisdom will not be found here. So James says that this false wisdom is earthly. Secondly, he says it's unspiritual. It simply means it's from the flesh. It comes from within us. It's a reflection of our humanness. And third, he says, it's demonic. It's spawned by demons. I want you to think back with me to Eve's encounter with the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Satan promised Eve wisdom. He said that by eating the fruit of the tree, they would be like God, knowing good and evil. The tree will make you wise. Well, no, that's a lie. The tree would not make them wise. Wisdom does not come from a created tree. Wisdom comes from the creator, God. Only God gives wisdom, and he gives it freely to all who would ask. James says that to us in chapter 1. He gives it freely to all who would ask. So what are the results then of this false wisdom? Well, look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be first disorder. This is confusion or chaos. And it's the same word that James uses in chapter 1 verse 8 when he talks about 
the double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. Unstable is the same word here. Disorder, chaotic. Second, James says that this leads to every vile practice. And this is just a reference to things that are worthless and produce nothing of value. It reminds me of Paul's list in Galatians 5 of the works of the flesh. This is quite a list he lays out here. Listen to what he says. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Earthly wisdom leads nowhere good. If that list of things is where earthly wisdom leads, then you don't want it. In contrast to this, the next two verses go on to talk about true wisdom. And I'm calling it dependable wisdom. Back in verse 15, James tells us that this so-called wisdom that results in selfish ambition and bitter jealousy is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Now he's going to go on to tell us about the wisdom that does come down from above and what it is. What we find next is a list of virtues similar to those given by Paul in his list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. And we also see significant ties here to the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. I've referenced this before as we've walked through James, that James makes numerous references back to the Sermon on the Mount. It was obviously something that had a significant impact on his life. Um, And he, he references it often as he works his way through this letter. As we looked at earlier, James began his look at false wisdom by talking about the motivations behind it, those being bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. I believe that he does the same thing here with true wisdom. James starts this list with purity. He says that wisdom from above is first pure. Now in my studies over the last few weeks as I've been looking over these things, I've come across several commentators that lump this in with the other virtues in the list, but I've also seen several that distinguish purity from the rest of the list, and they see purity as the motivation for true wisdom, and that's the way that I lean as well, and I'll explain why in just a second, but first let's define what purity is. Okay, the word pure carries with it the sense of sincere, moral, spiritual character that is free from jealousy and selfish ambition. So it's the opposite of what James has just been talking about. It's the absence of the spiritual, ethical, and behavioral imperfections which characterize the double-minded man that James has referred to in his letter. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For this reason, I believe that purity is not simply a characteristic of the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's the motivating factor that paves the way for all of the others. Purity is listed first because in many ways it is the most important. It's foundational to the characteristics that come after it. So let's, let's walk through these and take a look at these for a minute. Characteristics of true wisdom. First, he says that it is peaceable. Again, I believe a reference back to the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called sons of God. Peaceable is the opposite of the chaos and disorder that we find in worldly wisdom. Secondly, he says it's gentle. And this is an interesting term too. It's, it's, a, it's a term that's usually associated with justice, especially the administration of justice. And it suggests someone who does not abuse a position of power, but remains calm and sober and true to the highest ideals of the position that they hold. It's a sweet reasonableness, as one commentator called it, where there is no revenge. Again, I believe a reference to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 5. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He also says in verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the characteristics of true wisdom are peaceable, gentle. Thirdly, open to reason. Uh, Your translation may use the word submissive. Um, It's a word that uh, means trusting and easily persuaded, but not in a negative sense. It doesn't indicate a person without convictions or someone who is easily swayed. Instead, it is the image of a sober thinking and intuitive person who recognizes truth when it's heard and is willingly, uh, willingly receives such instruction. Someone is, who is open to reason is someone who is teachable and willing to yield. Again, a reflection, I believe, of the meekness mentioned earlier in this chapter as well as Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Next, he says it's full of mercy. Mercy is to have concern for people who suffer. Jesus said again in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And James told us back in chapter 1, verse 27, that true religion is evidenced by acts of kindness, showing mercy to people. Next, he says it's full of mercy and it's full of good fruits. In chapter 2 of James that we looked at a while back, he reminds us that faith is seen in deeds of love. And Jesus again in the Beatitudes said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness produce good fruits in their lives. Next, he says, Impartial. Wisdom from above is impartial. This is the opposite of double-minded. The person who is impartial is unwavering, undivided in their commitments. True wisdom is without double-mindedness, and it possesses a singularity of purpose in its trust in God. And then lastly, he closes out with a great word, sincere, which also means without hypocrisy in the previous passage he's talked about teachers and the responsibility that teachers have in proclaiming the truth and he was warning against false teachings false teachers are hypocrites they claim to have the wisdom of God 
and yet their lives do not reflect it. Their teachings don't reflect it. It's the definition of hypocrisy. So taken as a whole, these words counteract the divisive and party spirit, and they prompt an openness to God's leading. One who is wise, James, I believe, is telling us, demonstrates these characteristics. So what is the result, then, of true wisdom in one's life? James closes out this chapter with verse 18, and he says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What you sow, you reap. One righteous act becomes a seed for more righteous acts. So the result of true wisdom is peace. The practical result of wisdom is peace within the community. It's not a false peace at any cost. Rather, it's the peace that comes from making the correct but sometimes difficult decisions. This is what one commentator said about verse 18. He said, his point, talking about James, is simple. You reap what you sow. If a farmer sows corn, he reaps corn, not beans. If you sow peace, you will reap peace. If you sow selfishness and strife, you will reap conflict. He goes on to say, But also implicit in the verse is the fact that a harvest is not accidental or serendipitous. No farmer sits around doing nothing all year, then goes out into the field and says, Whoa, look at that beautiful harvest. If there is a harvest, it's in part because he has worked hard to cultivate the harvest. If you see a church or a home where there is peace, it is because the members have worked to cultivate peace. They have listened to one another, respected one another, judged their own selfishness and pride, and sought to live in accordance with godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. James wants us to apply godly wisdom to our personal lives and to our relationships. Is there peace in your home? Are you at peace with those in this church? If not, check out what kind of seed you're sowing. If you're sowing worldly wisdom, you'll reap disorder and every evil thing. If you sow God's wisdom, you'll reap peace. Whenever we get around to the next chapter of James, chapter 4, I think we'll see the link right away back to what he's just said. He's going to start by asking us another self-examination type of question that addresses discord among the body. Peace is the answer which comes through godly wisdom which results in godly living. Remember that wisdom is shown. I think James has made that clear today. It's not simply head knowledge. It's the character of God lived out in our daily lives. When you read that list there in verse 17, that is the character of God. And that's to be lived out in our lives if we are Christ followers. So let's start to wrap all this up, kind of recap and look at this again. In regard to the nature of wisdom, first the impact of the question in chapter 3 verse 13 must be faced. Who is wise and understanding among you? For those who do not care about true wisdom but only want the status of being thought wise, The question is a challenge. 
James's answer will expose them for what they are. For those who honestly aspire to being wise, the question is an invitation. James's answer shows the way. James is saying, I'm about, I'm about to tell you the nature of true wisdom. Treasure this. When approaching this passage, we should all first examine our own hearts. I think before reading beyond the question posed in 3.13. Do you really want to be wise? Then we must submit to James's answer about the requirements of true wisdom. Consistent with his previous instructions, James again requires action that authenticates words. Who claims to be wise? Let him show it by his good conduct. Oftentimes today, I think the phrase good conduct has taken a a connotation of a prosperous, pleasurable life. James, of course, is talking about quite another matter. He's talking about moral goodness. He elaborates, let him show it by his deeds. Live it out. Genuine wisdom like faith is a practical matter. It shows up in how we live, in how we carry our lives day to day. Literally, James says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the humility of wisdom. Wisdom then is not something that I will merely possess in my head. If I'm wise at all, it is something that I will demonstrate in my conduct. We like to think of ourselves as wise, and we're quick to justify our own role in conflicts. But James is exactly the kind of counselor that we need, one who will not let us deceive ourselves and who will bring clarity to the complex issues. For Christians who want to learn true spirituality, James cuts to the heart of the matter. We will miss the point if we do not recognize the continuity of thought between the previous section and this one. James has just given his readers a sobering picture. This certainty of judgment and their vulnerability in that judgment because of the terrible evil that they do, particularly when it comes to their speech. And it leads to one of the most fundamental questions of life that anyone must face, that everyone must face. How can I hope to purify my behavior, such as my speech, when it flows from my corrupt inward character? How can my heart be changed from its selfishness? Is there any hope? Well, the answer to that last question is a resounding yes. There is hope, and His name is Jesus. When we get into the next chapter, we'll see how James writes about this hope. That there is a spirituality available from God for the Christ follower. Aspects of this include gaining wisdom from God, which we talked about today. Asking for provision from God. Living in friendship with God. Drawing near to God and being lifted up by God. The bottom line that we need to see in all this is that it's all from God. It is all attained by reliance on Him and Him alone. It's a spirituality that comes because, as James says in chapter 4, verse 6, 
God gives us more grace. More grace and more grace. We can, church, we can live victorious lives in Christ Jesus. This letter that James has written commands living to an exacting standard. And sometimes you read it and think, I can never live up to that. But James also teaches the forgiveness of God and the truth that as the word, as his word, as God's word is planted in us and as it is nurtured in us, that we as Christ followers can grow into perfection. Do you remember James' words from chapter 1, verse 4? He said, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is concerned with our wholehearted devotion to Jesus. He's not interested in half-hearted attempts at being Christ followers. He wants to see believers living a completely integrated life in which our actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs that we have learned from Christ Jesus. Now remember, perfection, that term that James uses, is not a reference to sinlessness. It's a reference to spiritual maturity. We can grow into perfection, into spiritual maturity. Remember the definition of wisdom that we talked about earlier? Wisdom consists of knowing and obeying the commandments of God. Knowing and doing His commandments. As we've seen, James references the Sermon on the Mount many times throughout this letter. And I have no doubt that he had these words in mind when penning this section on wisdom. These are Jesus' closing words in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Where is your wisdom found today? Let's pray.